Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Thursday, May 28th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Is the coronavirus more dependent on super spreaders than we thought? Research indicates possible biological markers to determine how severely an individual will react to COVID-19 and how the decline of local journalism is taking a toll on America's small towns. Plus, will we be able to trust our memories of this time? Cannibalistic dinosaurs and why oranges are sold in red mesh bags. The United Kingdom is rolling out a new testing and tracing initiative today, quoting the New York Times. People with potential COVID-19 symptoms will be tested and, if positive, be asked to list everyone they have been recently in close contact with for at least 15 minutes, and those people will, in turn, be contacted and asked to isolate themselves for 14 days. The country's health secretary, Matt Hancock, said this week that the program aimed to replace a nationwide lockdown with individual isolation or smaller localized restrictions if new cases emerge. The move comes a day after France's parliament approved the deployment of a contact tracing app that has set off an intense debate in the country. Critics question how the gathered data will be used and worry about setting a precedent for state-run monitoring. But France's data privacy watchdog ruled that the app has sufficient safeguards. End quote. Mexico is facing a devastating shortage of healthcare workers and equipment, with over 11,300 healthcare workers falling ill, one of the highest rates in the world. Quoting the Times, We've had many of what we call dumb deaths, said Pablo Villasenor, a doctor at the General Hospital in Tijuana, the center of an outbreak. It's not the virus that's killing them, it's the lack of proper care. Patients die because they're given the wrong medications or the wrong dose, healthcare workers said. Protective gloves at some hospitals are so old that they crack the moment they're slipped on, nurses said. Mexico's government spends less on healthcare as a percent of its economy than most countries in the Western Hemisphere, according to the World Bank. President Obrador presided over spending cuts even after acknowledging that his country had 200,000 fewer healthcare workers than it needed, end quote. As the tourism industry seeks to revive itself, some nations are getting creative. Cyprus is now saying that it will cover the costs of lodging, food, drinks, and medication for any travelers who test positive for coronavirus after visiting the country. Tourism accounts for 15% of Cyprus's economy, and they have seen less than 1,000 cases of coronavirus. And Senator Tim Kaine has announced that he and his wife tested positive for coronavirus antibodies. They experienced flu-like symptoms around the time the Senate took a recess in late March, but weren't originally tested due to a scarcity of supplies and the mild nature of their symptoms. This makes him the second confirmed U.S. senator to have recovered from COVID-19, the other one being Senator Rand Paul.
I've got two pieces of cautiously optimistic news from New York Magazine's coronavirus roundup. First is that the coronavirus may be more dependent on large public events and super spreaders than we originally thought, quoting New York Magazine. The media conversation about SARS-CoV-2 has popularized one key epidemiological variable, R, the average number of people an afflicted individual infects. Before social distancing measures were enacted, the coronavirus had an R of about 3. And yet, this average obscures the profound variation between individuals. Estimates vary, but multiple research teams believe that the typical COVID-19 patient does not infect a single other person, a reality that is concealed by the prolific transmission rates of so-called superspreaders. In fact, according to a new study from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, LSHTM, about 10% of coronavirus patients are responsible for 80% of all new infections. This means that the coronavirus's high R is potentially mitigated by its low K, a variable that describes how reliant a disease is on clusters of infection in order to spread. Viruses with a high K, such as the 1918 influenza, can spread diffusely through a large number of individuals. Those with a low K, such as the novel coronavirus's close relatives SARS and MERS, cannot sustain themselves without superspreaders. This was one reason why both of those coronaviruses burned out quickly and never recurred. Research from the University of Bern suggests that the coronavirus has a slightly higher K than SARS or MERS, but one that is much lower than that of the Spanish flu. This finding makes some of the random disparities in outcomes easier to understand. A virus with a low K value needs a bit of luck to get off the ground. If such a bug gets itself into the right human, say one who's too committed to choir practice to let a cold keep them home, it can gain a foothold in a community. If it infects a bunch of lonely homebodies, meanwhile, it will die out before making its presence felt, as the novel coronavirus ostensibly did in France last December. If SARS-CoV-2 has a K as low as the LSHTM study claims, then it would need to be introduced to a new country four separate times before securing a 50-50 chance of infecting enough people to sustain a prolonged outbreak, end quote. So this could be one reason we haven't seen massive surges in places that reopened businesses but didn't resume large public gatherings like concerts and sporting events. It could also mean that maybe we can resume some activities like non-essential shopping, even as we have to pause larger scale gatherings, potentially including open office plans for much longer. The other bit of cautiously optimistic news is that scientists are making progress on identifying biomarkers that determine whether an individual will have a mild or severe reaction to COVID-19. Researchers in Wuhan analyzing 485 coronavirus patients with machine learning tools to isolate biological characteristics found, quote, three biological markers are so predictive of mortality, they can signal whether a COVID-19 patient will develop life-threatening illness with 90% accuracy more than 10 days ahead of time. The three so-called biomarkers, all of which can be measured using a single drop of blood, were... Elevated levels of the enzyme lactic dehydrogenase, or LDH, low levels of lymphocytes, i.e. white blood cells, and high-sensitivity C-reactive proteins, which are indicative of respiratory inflammation, end quote. Now, those three things may or may not mean much to you and your ability to rate your own odds, 
But if those or similar findings pan out, it will be incredibly helpful to healthcare workers to be able to better allocate hospital resources and make treatment plans for individual patients. But as with everything with the coronavirus, while both of these bits of news are backed up by legit studies, they're still just preliminary findings and only small pieces of the overall puzzle. Plus, as the article says, this pandemic has routinely cast chaos as the protagonist. As the coronavirus continues spreading through more rural communities across America, there have been a lot of concerns raised. Lack of well-funded hospitals, older populations, more prevalent medical conditions. But there's another way some of these communities might be at a disadvantage. The decline of local journalism. Writing in The Atlantic, Mark Bowden points out, quote, While all of us get reams of reporting about national and international COVID-19 trends, most of us get little or no reporting about what's happening in the communities where we actually live. He continues, Local news has largely disappeared. The phenomenon of news deserts is by now well known. And yet never has the need for local information been greater. The big news can be completely at odds with the small news, and for individuals, it's the small news that matters most. The crucial virus data is hyperlocal. In my neighborhood, hidden within a larger geographic picture whose trends give cause for hope, the disease is spiking dramatically, even scarily, and almost nobody knows, end quote. Bowden says he's been keeping an eye on coronavirus-related stats by Municipality, published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and noticed a worrying spike in his home of Kennett Square, a small borough southwest of Philadelphia. He notes that it's the kind of thing a local reporter would write about, but there are no local reporters. And because the municipality is so small, the spike isn't even being reported on the larger county's Department of Health website. His point? Small communities are being overlooked by larger media, and without local journalists to uncover and amplify this vital information, the people in those communities might not get it until it's too late. One thing I've mentioned before is how as the pandemic goes on, and I recognize my utter opposition to watching any coronavirus-related movies or TV shows that will inevitably be produced in the coming years, because, you know, living through it is enough, I start to understand why the 1918 flu pandemic maybe hasn't been mentioned or recorded as much in history as I would expect for something that had such a large impact on the world at the time. Like many traumatic events, the people who lived through it didn't want to recount it. And continuing on that thread, I've been really interested in the science of memory and the psychological fallout that we'll be seeing in the coming months and years. According to Steve Ramirez, a neuroscientist at Boston University, our brains evolved to remember exceptionally good and exceptionally bad memories so that we could either replicate the behavior that led to something rewarding or avoid the behavior or location that led to something bad, like a particular spot where you encountered a predatory animal. But prolonged experiences like this pandemic can blend together. Quoting Discover Magazine, According to a 2016 Nature study, distinct memories close together in time tend to recruit similar, overlapping brain cells to encode them, whereas memories that are separated by a longer temporal gulf involve separate sets of cells. And infusing those memories with emotion can intensify the extent to which the brain uses that shared neural ensemble. This is speculation, but I think our brains are going to hyperchunk the pandemic into one big episode, says Ramirez. 
Intuitively, that's the way it's felt to me so far. End quote. Because emotional memories, all blended together, may be intensified, our brains might try to tamp down the intensity of those emotions when we recall them. And while that's good for our mental health, it can actually make our memories less accurate. Quote, Every time we recall something, says Ramirez, it makes that memory susceptible to modification, almost like pressing save as on a Microsoft Word document. There are ways of mentally walking down that memory lane to reframe that memory in a way that isn't stressful or makes us feel like we have control over it, says Ramirez, end quote. Additionally, when we learn new information related to a memory, we can supplant our memories with that new information. And for an ongoing event like this pandemic with constant new information coming out and it being a constant topic of our conversations, it's likely that we'll be misremembering some of the ways we truly thought or experienced earlier parts of the pandemic. Quoting again, Those faulty details might be as simple as dramatizing something while telling a story, says Darren Strange, a psychologist at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Like exaggerating the number of sirens you've heard lately. Sometimes those errors might be a consequence of taking on other people's details. If you're in New York and you're talking with friends who live closer to a hospital, they might be telling you about the trailers parked outside for the overflow from morgues, says Strange. And two weeks later, you're telling people that you've seen that because you imagined it so vividly in your mind, end quote. These faulty memories can work to confirm our perceptions of things, like matching to our particular political stances, and even more commonly, during non-traumatic events, can be used to confirm our own self-image. Like in a study from Yale and the University of Zurich that found that people tend to remember their actions as more generous than they really were. But Strange and Ramirez point out, as discomforting as it may be to think about the unreliability of our memories, this type of reorganizing of our memory is crucial to our survival. Otherwise, we would be overloaded by separately stored memories and realistic emotional replays. The errors created by our memories are helping keep us from reliving traumatic moments in full detail over and over again. If you do want to remember this time with a bit more accuracy, you can, of course, try things like journaling, taking photos, or recording video logs. And if you do do any of those and you want to share them, you could submit your creations to the Fraser History Museum in Louisville's Coronavirus Capsule. They're collecting photos, artwork, videos, class projects, and written materials in order to, quote, document and preserve how people are seeing, feeling, and coping with this pandemic. You can submit pieces online, although they might not necessarily be included. Submissions are viewable in a virtual exhibit on their website now and will one day be curated into a physical exhibit. Link to that is in the show notes. Fossils discovered in the Mygatmore Quarry in Colorado show evidence of scavenging and possibly cannibalism among allosaurus in the late Jurassic period, according to a new paper published yesterday. A team of paleontologists studied over 2,300 bones in the quarry and found that 29% of them had bite marks from theropods, a group of very large carnivorous dinosaurs. In measuring the bite marks, the team was able to conclude that the Allosaurus, Ceratosaurus, and an additional unidentified carnivore were feeding on carcasses left at the site. Quoting CNET, The quarry is believed to preserve specimens from an ancient wetlands ecosystem, where carcasses were unlikely to disappear into the mud quickly. This gave huge predators a chance to scavenge meat from bone. 
The team found many of the bite marks on herbivore bones were located on places where the meat had high nutritional value, which makes sense for huge predators. However, those found on theropod bones were located on regions that provided less nutritional value, suggesting the mammoth beasts weren't trying to hunt each other, but taking advantage of remains. Even more intriguing, the team believes that they have discovered evidence of Allosaurus bite marks on Allosaurus bones. That would make it a Jurassic cannibal, and the first evidence of cannibalism in Allosaurus. End quote. While it's possible the bite marks could be left behind from battling with each other like modern-day crocodiles do, the paleontologists point out that, quote, some of the bite marks are in locations that could only reasonably be reached after death or dismemberment, end quote. So, just in case you had been starting to think dinosaurs weren't quite metal enough, here you go. And finally today, a question I had never even thought to ask until I saw it posed online. Why are oranges sold in red mesh bags? Like so many things in life, the answer is not in practicality, but rather in marketing. Quoting Mental Floss, The color orange pops when compared with the color red more so than it does with yellow, green, or blue. That means when you see a bunch of oranges behind a red net pattern, your brain assumes they're more orange, and therefore fresher and higher quality, than it would if you saw them on their own. That's the same reason red is chosen when making bags for fruits like grapefruits or tangerines, which are also orange in color. For lemon packaging, green is more commonly chosen to make the yellow rind stand out. If lemons were sold in the same red bags as other citrus, the red and yellow hues together would actually make the fruits appear orange. Lemons can also come in yellow mesh bags, and the bags for limes are usually green to match their color. End quote. The science of marketing behind grocery stores is always really interesting to me. For example, grocery stores are typically laid out with produce, fresh, aromatic, and appealing, right at the entrance. Dairy products, the most common item for people to have on their shopping list, are usually at the back of a store, ensuring that shoppers have to walk through the entire store to get there, hopefully being tempted by end cap shelves and remembering additional items they need along the way. And a tip for you? The most expensive items are usually placed at eye level, so if you want to save money, look down. And some stores move food that's going to expire sooner to the front of the shelf. You'll have to weigh your ethics on food waste with this hack, but if it's really important to you to get a loaf of bread that lasts a few days longer, you can dig to the back of the shelf and sometimes find a newer loaf than the ones displayed in the front. Just a few grocery hacks for you there. So, on yesterday's show, I was talking about how amped I was about the SpaceX launch that was going to be happening. I did say there was a chance it might get cancelled, and of course it did. Right after I posted the show talking about it, I turned on NASA's live stream, and with 17 minutes before takeoff, the astronauts all strapped in and everything, they called it off due to weather. But it is rescheduled for this Saturday at 3.22pm Eastern, and if that doesn't work, they're going to try for Sunday at 3 o'clock sharp. So, one day, eventually, we will see this rocket take off. But for now, that is all for today. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.